Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network, a station dedicated to the concept that all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Join Reverend Terry Power HP, Robin McKean, and all the hosts for programming covering a wide range of spiritual topics right here on Blog Talk Radio. in 1990, just two hours after she married him, 
she saw a flying trapeze rig being uh, offered up to the guests as kind of a unique experience and a form of exercise. So she's thinking that it would be a good way to conquer her morbid fear of heights. She decided, probably after a couple of Mai Tais, to give it a try. So her fear was gradually replaced by this addiction to adrenaline, and a new aerial junkie was born in 1990. She has continued this passion much to my dismay, and she flies every week twice a day. She's added skydiving and zip lining to her list of thrill-seeking adventures. And she also has a good friend who, at the age of 86, is listed in the Guinness Book of Records as the oldest female trapeze flyer And Pamela Ventura is now looking forward to breaking that record. So without further ado, I will introduce my wonderful, fabulous, brilliant sister-in-law who scares me to death when she climbs up that ladder. Welcome, Pamela. (laughs) Thank you, Keck. It's lovely to be here with you and Hercules. Now, you got into trapeze when you were at Club Med. So how was that first experience for you? Well, I think anybody who sees a trapeze rig immediately becomes curious about it because I think everyone, when they're small and they start dreaming, they dream of flying, And when I was very young, the first Peter Pan came out. And I always remember sitting watching it with my parents, and Peter Pan would scream, I'm flying, I'm flying, as he flew through the air. And I would make my dad pick me up with one arm and one leg and swing me around like an airplane, and I would yell, I'm flying. So I always had that fantasy of flying, but I never had any way to realize it. And, of course, when you're morbidly fear of heights and can't even climb a stepladder, it becomes even more difficult to realize that dream. But I watched these regular people on vacation and probably who had had a few Mai Tais go up and try it. And there was, there was a lot of safety equipment that was involved. You wore a belt around your waist that had a rope on either side that went up to pulleys, and a person on the ground held the rope so that if you let go, they could just kind of tinkerbell you down into the net. So I I figured I probably wouldn't die if I tried it, and if I did, at least I was in paradise, so how bad could it be? So I climbed up the ladder, and it took me a very long time to get there because I was shaking so hard I couldn't just take one step at a time. I had to do it, you know, one step and then stop and breathe and another step and stop and breathe. And then the rigging is quite tall. It's about 32 feet tall. So when you reach the top of the ladder, you are looking down quite a long way. And there's you're standing on a pedestal board that's only maybe six inches wide. So it's really precarious. And it gets your adrenaline pumping really well, and then you just have to let go and do what they tell you to, and your brain flies out your ears, 
And so you do it, they say you do it the first time for fear and the second time for fun. And that's pretty much how it worked out for me. Wow. Now, as a kid, I uh, flew with my father, not like you do, but I flew in a plane. So I felt safe kind of flying in an airplane. But I went up that rig at your suggestion once and came right (laughs) back down. So I said, no, 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 no. I think I'd like to be in uh, a metal object with little propellers on it. That's how I'll fly. So (laughs) it's quite amazing that you still don't know. How many years have you been flying? Almost 30 years. 30 years. All right, now here's a weird question. But if you, let's say you were much younger when you got into this trapeze, you became a trapezeaholic, would you have in your 20s, do you think, or maybe in your teens, would you think you'd have gone off and joined the circus and done this for a living? I don't think so because I was extremely shy and thin when I was younger and was not at all athletic. So I could have been drawn to trying it. I don't think I would have been very good at it at all, and I I don't think it would have been the right time in my life to really test those waters. Ah, all right. Well, has there ever been a time in your adult life since you've been flying that you've thought, gee, you know, what if I joined a troop? I could be a pro at this. No, because first of all, they don't get paid very much. Second of all, their living conditions are dreadful, unless you're, you know, the cream of the crop and you're living on the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey train, which doesn't exist anymore. But it's a very hard life. Um there's a lot of glory to it. The the trapeze artists are traditionally the stars of whatever circus they're in. But I know it's just it's too much. And I'm I am a Leo and I have a healthy ego, but I am sometimes more afraid of looking foolish than I am of, you know, blustering my way through something. So I'm content to, you know, sit by the sidelines and applaud. And sometimes we have little shows where I fly, and that's enough for me. And when we would go to Club Med, they would always have a trapeze show one night of the week, and we'd put on costumes and sparkles, and they'd have music and lights, and that would be fun. But it was always horrifically anxiety-ridden for me. So it's I just like to do it as a hobby and as a, a form of exercise. Now, your parents lived to be into their 90s. Did they ever get to watch you fly? Oh, yes. My parents did, and my brother did also. Um, I think my brother and my dad just thought it was really cool, but my mother, every time I would step off the pedestal board, would gasp. <laughs> And, and frighten everyone around her. So she, I think she made it okay through one class and said, oh, good, thank you for inviting us, and then they never came back again. But they, did, they watched videos and stuff. So I think not being there in the moment by moment, what if, oh, my God, then they were much better with the videos because they knew I was sitting in front of them and had lived through whatever it was I was doing. Well, your maiden name was Kidwell, so it would you don't think it would have been the flying Kidwells then? No, I don't think so. It's not flashy enough. 
Well, well, you know, you you talk about not going on the road, but you have a lot of friends in the flying world. I mean, I know personally that you have flying friends in Australia, in Canada, in Las Vegas. Um, Tell us a little bit about that group and that uh, camaraderie of knowing flyers all over the world. Flyers know that people adore them when they watch them fly and they see the sparkles and they they see the athletic endeavor that they're doing, but the people who don't fly don't really know how hard it is to do what these people are doing. So anytime a flyer, even an amateur club flyer like me and my friends, anytime we have ever been to visit professional flyers or other amateur trapeze rigs, there's always this immediate cohesion because we know what we go through to keep this passion alive in our lives. And the people who are the the greats know that we really appreciate what they do. We had the great good fortune to actually go and practice in Reno, Nevada, with the flying cranes from the Moscow Circus, who are one of the few trapeze acts, along with my teacher, Richie Guyona, and his family, who have won the Golden Clown at the Monte Carlo International Circus Festival, which is the absolute pinnacle of circus uh, royalty. And the cranes act is very different from a traditional trapeze act they have much many more trapezes and different levels and they're russian and so because a friend of ours named masha nordby had done a documentary on the flying cranes she took a few people with her to reno and we got to go practice with them on this amazing rig they have and they kind of stumbled through English and Masha could translate the Russian and they welcomed us with open arms they they coached us they taught us things they took us into their homes for dinner it was just an international uh, meeting of the minds and bodies and that happens everywhere you go if you are an aerialist they're different also it's not all flying trapeze some of that is um, liras and silks and swinging trapezes, but everybody is a part of this community. And even if it comes to flying with somebody that you don't particularly care for personally, which doesn't happen very often, you everybody is still always, always there for each other to help you know hold the bar help you get back up on the board whatever it is you need when you are in the air you are a community and i find that so refreshing and so wonderful in today's world well i had some experience with the the trapeze community uh by way of a television show i did for years i worked for the bob stivers productions in Hollywood, and we he produced, or we all produced, Circus of the Stars every year. 
part of the uh, part of the circus back then was a bit of animal training or animal acts, and that could involve uh, a tiger. It could involve poodles. It could involve monkeys. It could involve you know anything that we thought. And as the years went on, we didn't uh, use any of the animals anymore, except maybe domestic animals. We did use some dogs, but. Um, and, and the aerial acts were kind of amazing because the offer would go out to celebrities, and the offer went something like this. Hi, we'd like to have you star on Circus of the Stars in the aerial act. We'd like you to learn trapeze, and we will train you for six weeks, and then you will appear on the show, and you'll do um, the, the aerial act. You'll do trapeze or the high wire or the wheel or one of those circus acts. And the celebrities would be interested until they learned that that was like eight, nine hours a day of trapeze <laughs> practice, that you just didn't show up for an hour in your pretty little pink tights, and there you were. Um, right. So it was very interesting. I, I did this show for about five years in a row. And um, so that being said, I worked with a lot of celebrities who learned trapeze and, you know, helped them ice their poor little tendons after they'd rehearsed and practiced. But you, you work on a rig uh, in Northridge, and you work with the Richie Guyona and his family. And, and do, you, do celebrities train with you? Yes, they do. He, because Richie is a stuntman as well as a circus artist, he has worked on all sorts of films like the Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, he's done films with Jackie Chan, just tons and tons of actors he's worked with. And of course, once they've worked with him, they all want to come to his house and try flying. So he has hosted them, like Tom Cruise came and brought his children so they could try it. Um, Neil Patrick Harris, who is such a delightful human being, came and trained with us for quite a while, and he and I were trying to catch our double somersaults together. And he had to leave and go do his acting career, so I don't think he ever caught his, but he was great fun. And uh, Giselle Bunchen, who is the Victoria's Secret model and Tom Brady's wife, trained with us for a while. Um, probably I was most impressed with Olympian and gold medal winner Greg Luganis, who came and we all just fell at his feet. I mean, it was like, are you kidding me? This is an Olympian, and he wants to come and fly with the us pedestrian people. And he, you can just tell why he is such an amazing athlete, because he is so focused. But he had a very difficult time in the beginning, because as a diver, he goes, he ends everything he does head down into the water. You do not ever want to go head down into a trapeze net because it will break you. So he had to really work and work and work at opening up from whatever trick he was doing flat with his belly going down into the net. And to see this athlete so frustrated because he didn't pick it up immediately was just – it was – I don't want to say amusing, but it made me feel better. It made us all feel better because he didn't come in and just immediately go bing, bang, bong and 
catching doubles and triples, but he did progress much faster than any of the rest of us, and he was just as warm and wonderful as you would think. And he then, right after he trained with us, he went on to judge some terrible television show about diving. I can't remember the name of it. Maybe it was called Splash, but anyway. So, yeah, we've we've gotten to meet a lot of really cool people. Um, and then people like Tony Steele, who was with the Flying Steels, who is an absolute historical icon in the flying trapeze world. He was the first man to do a three-and-a-half somersault to the catcher, which means he crunches his knees up into his chest as he lets go of his trapeze bar. He goes backwards three times, and then instead of opening up to give the catcher his hands, like you usually do, he goes another half turn and gives the catcher his legs. Well, this had never been seen before Tony Steele did it. And if you miss this trick, you are doing what Greg Luganis started out doing. You are going head down into the net, and you have to have the agility of a cat to come out of it. But and Tony is now today, I believe he's 82 or 3. He's had a stroke. He lives in Florida, and he still is flying here and there because flying keeps you young. Passion for anything will keep you young. And Tony is passionate about the flying trapeze and anything that has to do with the circus. Wow. Wow. Uh, and and isn't wasn't there a ninja uh, a, a ninja contestant that you flew with too or did you or am I yes. not yeah Jesse Graff once again when she was a little child she wanted to be a trapeze artist and fly and I don't know what pushed oh I guess she was a gymnast and she was a pole vaulter so she her fame initially came from track and field and being a pole vaulter and then somehow she started doing the flying trapeze then when she came on American Ninja Warrior for some reason she showed up at Richie's and started training with us again because it had been a while before she had been on a rig so she if there is something called proprioception which means you have some idea of where your body is in space. And some people have it and some people don't. And it's usually when I'm learning something new, I, if when I jump off the board, I have my eyes open, but I feel like someone has just thrown a white sheet over my head, and that's all I can see. But Jessie Graff doesn't have that problem. She knows exactly where her body is in space anytime. And she, for Red Nose Day, which I believe Walgreens uh, started to generate money for children's charities, everybody had to wear a red nose and they would donate such amount of money for each red nose. Richie at our rig had a, a camera crew come by and Jesse went up to fly with a red nose on, and he had people call in and say what trick Jesse should be doing. But he wouldn't tell her what it was until after she had jumped off the platform and was already swinging. So to do that, 
I mean, that that's really special to be able to just pick it up and literally in midair and do what somebody is telling you to do is pretty pretty amazing. So she still comes around and practices in between doing, you know, she's a stunt woman also. She goes and does movies and she does American Ninja Warriors and she does a lot of um, acro yoga and hand balancing down at the beach in Santa Monica. So she's a very busy woman and she has a pet pig named Samo Hog. <laughs> well, you see, look at all of the secrets are being revealed right here. I know. Well, now, this show is dedicated to concepts of healing. And so what I wanted to talk about is a little bit, um, Sam Keen was a philosopher that I followed uh, so much in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. He was absolutely amazing. One of his famous books, and one of my favorites, was To a Dancing God, and he he called it Notes of a Spiritual Traveler. He also wrote a book called Faces of the Enemy, Inward Bound, Fire in the Belly was very, very important. And he talks about uh, life as as trying to be a, a spiritual male in this in this lifetime and in this time that we live in. And he talked about what that was like and his struggles. And and one of the books he wrote that I am fascinated with and I love is, as you know, we've talked about it, you recommended it, is called Learning to Fly. Now, Sam Keen is now 88 years old, but he started flying when he was in his 60s. And I know that you were a contributor towards that book, but I'd like you to talk about Sam Keen a little bit. Um, He says in his book that he was swimming in a pool one day when his inner flying man entered his body. So he took a beginner's class after that, and he learned to fly. He talks about his aches, his pains, his fears, his challenges, but he loved flying. So Tell us a little bit about Sam Keen. Sam Keen is one of the most interesting people I have ever met. We spent some time, as I mentioned, the the flying cranes from Moscow. We spent some time, a group of us, in Reno when Sam was writing this book, and he was going around to like Circus Circus, the uh, Miguel Vasquez and his family were flying at Circus Circus. The Flying Pages were flying somewhere in Reno. So he was going around and interviewing all of these flying troops, and the flying cranes were also there. So he would go and talk to these people, and as I said, they know that if you do what they do, you appreciate them a thousand times more than the people like in the casino, Circus Circus. I always thought that was the saddest place in the world because here are these world-famous trapeze artists flying above all these people in tank tops and shorts and flip-flops, eating ice cream cones and putting quarters in slot machines. And it was just... It wasn't right, but they, you know, they continued to do it. And so Sam went up and and flew with them, trained with them. And then he put together this book, Learning to Fly, that is such a passionate 
brilliant description of what it's like to fly the trapeze. He is so devoted to the art of flying. He also became a catcher, which is not easy at all. I think it's harder than flying. Uh, And he coined terms in this book like becoming a connoisseur of fear, (laughs) which is just perfect. You know, you think you've got your stuff together, and then you go up, and you're getting ready to do a trick, and the monkey mind kicks in, and it's, what if this? What if I forget what I'm doing? What if my hands slip? What if the catcher forgets to come? And you just have this whole tortured conversation with yourself, and he he illustrates that so brilliantly in his book and the he i forget if it i think it must have been before he wrote the book he actually put up a trapeze rig in his home in sonoma and he could just go out walk out his door any day of the week and go up and fly in his trapeze and he, I don't think I've ever seen anybody happier than Sam when he was up on his flying trapeze. And, of course, he brought tons of people to the trapeze because of it, because he had a lot of followers of his writings and his philosophy. And when this book came out, I'm sure people just came by the droves to come and fly with Sam Keen. So he has contributed a great deal to the passion of the flying trapeze for a lot of people. Well, he talks about flying being a leap of faith, that it takes all you've got to release into the air, and that it's more of a spiritual exercise than even one of releasing fear. Can can you talk to us about that? Well, there's a very famous quote by a young woman named Erin, I believe it's Erin Hansen, who Erin Hansen, yes, and she her quote in a poem is, what if I fall? Oh, but my darling, what if you fly? Which pretty much sums up our mindset. You have to trust, trust is everything in trapeze. You have to trust yourself, first of all. You have to trust that what your catcher has taught you to do when you let go and release into the air is correct and that he will be there for you. You have to trust if you're wearing the safety lines that the person holding your safety lines will save you if you start to fall and you're out of control. So it's a great deal like I'm, I think pretty much all the religions that you look to whatever deity or whatever higher power you identify with, that that this power is going to help you get through whatever challenges that you're facing that day. They will give you the strength. You know, God helps those who help themselves. You have been given by God or the universe or whatever certain physical attributes and mental processes that allow you to take on challenges and be victorious with them. So it's, it's like the first thing you have to do is climb the ladder to get up to the pedestal. Well, everybody says, oh, in my job, I'm climbing the ladder to success. 
So you have to look up when you climb the ladder. You have to look at where you're going and trust that your legs are going to push you up and that your hands are going to keep you on that ladder, much like your God or your deity or whatever is going to keep you on the right path for you. And then when you get up to the top, you have to literally let go with one hand of the ladder and reach across a space where there is nothing and grab a bar with your other hand and step across, which it seems like the Grand Canyon the first time you do it, but it's really only about a foot. But you have to trust that the people who are already up there will take your hand and pull you over and guide you to where you're supposed to be. And then you have to jump off the board, which some people, present company included, can't do. They stand up there and look out at the net, which seems that it goes on forever, and they see how far they have to reach out to take the bar, and they just go, nope, can't do it, and they go back down the ladder. But for those who take the leap, they have to trust that the person holding their lines is going to keep them from killing themselves. And then they have to let go because if they're going to do a trick and if you're going to go to the catcher, which is the whole point of the flying trapeze, you literally have to let go of the trapeze bar and be airborne. And that's horrifying if you've never done it before. But the catcher is always close to you. You have to communicate with the catcher, much like you have to communicate with uh, God or the universe or meditation or whatever, and you have to make that connection. And once you do, then everything just kind of falls into place. So it's for me, it's very spiritual. Um, I know that there are people who don't like to put bring that aspect into it and just say well it's just me and myself and i guess if that works for them it's fine but i it's it's always been very spiritual for me and i think 99% of all the other flyers as well well i know you know when i jumped out of a plane i i had no problem uh, yes there's you know <clears throat> 14,000 feet below there's the earth and you've got this little <laughs> little silk thing, this little umbrella that you're going to pop at some point. And uh, and I didn't jump out with anybody else. I jumped out by myself, what they call a static line, and the line actually pulls your chute for you after, oh, what really felt like six or seven hours. But uh, <laughs> So you jump, boom, out you go, and there you're out there. Nothing, you and nothing, but it's quiet. It's beautiful. And then six or seven hours later, your chute opens, and now you get to float. So I was fine with that. I was fine with that. And then, of course, once the chute's open, it's like, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm going to stay up here as long as I can. Um, and I would do that again. But climbing up that ladder, standing on that little six-inch thing, and having some guy going, swingy, swingy, and I'm supposed to <laughs> leap out and have him catch me? No way, Jose. Well, it's uh, interesting you say that because we. I found the same feeling when I jumped out of a plane. You are so high 
that you don't really get the roller coaster down a hill feeling in your stomach because the frame of reference is too far below you. But when we brought the skydiving guys that we went out to jump with to Richie's rig, they were scared out of their minds because they could see <laughs> how close they were to the ground and it just completely freaked them out and I thought that was the weirdest thing I'd ever seen well but it's, it's all pretty interesting I guess it's pretty interesting I remember uh, you know I had a, a friend take a shot of me as I was as I just released off the strut of a plane and uh, it was a little plane you crawled out of, not one of those big military ones right. that you just sort of. Jump. So, uh, and and there is a combination of fear and kind of like that. I this may be my last moment on earth, so I'm going to have a good time out for long. Yeah. Yeah, and it's but it, it's a different feeling, and then you're up there and it's quiet, and you get to see and you have a different per- perspective. Um, but that other feeling, I mean, I do admire the people who go up there, and I understand that you get used to it. And I remember being told by my uh, flight instructor I got all of 30 minutes of, uh, of a lesson oh, in what to do. I know, I know. But, you know, we were running out of light, and you had to jump before dusk. So um, I did that, and uh, I remember him saying, just look at the horizon in order to not have any nausea or dirt error um then you just looked at the horizon and and that was a trick all of a sudden your equal equilibrium was even and it was uh you know a really good thing but since you've done both um well obviously you like flying more because you do it more frequently but um do you think you'd ever be a jumper as well i don't think so because i've done it twice um, both at the same place up in Taft, California, and because Richie, our teacher, knew the guys there because Richie had already plunged into that world, you should pardon the expression, um, they knew that we were probably going to do all right jumping out of an airplane. So they said, well, you know, if you want to do like somersaults or barrel rolls or whatever you want to do, this is how we do it, and if we think you're okay to do it, then we can do it. So the first time I jumped, I did tandem. I would never jump out of an airplane solo. I think that's insanity because, <laughs> yes, you had something pull your ripcord for you, but then you had to steer the chute yourself. Yeah, yeah. So you could have ended up in uh, Timbuktu, and I, no, I don't want that responsibility. Well, but, I did actually. I stayed up longer than I was supposed to, and I floated all kinds of places. And the truck had to drive ten miles to get me. So you know, there rebel. was there was a little hell to pay, but it was worth it. it right, was worth right. It. But I so we the first time we jumped, I did seven backward somersaults with a cute boy on my back. So you know how bad wow. could that be? And then he popped the chute, and then we just floated down. And then the second time I went out, we did forward somersaults which was pretty cool because you could see the plane flying away as you went out of it um and then i thought you know what this is good got the video got the photographs there is something a little scary about just being with a parachute and nothing else i mean the flying trapeze you have somebody else who is holding your safety lines 
and you're not falling that far. And I, you know, I, I know people who have jumped thousands of times, never had a problem. But I thought, yeah, you know, did that, been there, done that, got the T-shirt. Don't need to do that anymore. Yeah, still able to uh, use my own fork to feed myself. So I think Thank I will you. just stay. Yeah. Well, I'm going to give one more quote here from uh, our favorite Sam Keen before we move on. Um, and and I and I loved uh, his description. He said, "Only this is clear: entering the circus, we step back into a world." Ruled by enchantment, where magic existed before morality, wonder before worship, pleasure before piety, and amazement before practicality. So when you're up there on the platform, do you, uh, do you think of yourself impractical? Are you ever afraid up there, or have you mastered that? I have pretty much mastered it. If I'm just going to do my repertoire of these are the tricks I know how to do and stretch out and get ready to go to the catcher, I'm good. I'm not afraid. I am cautious. Um, When I learn a new trick that I've never done before and I have to incorporate some twist or somersault or something that I've never done before – then I can, yeah, I can be a little afraid because I am a big self-doubter. I have to do something 10,000 times before I finally go, oh, that's how you do that. Okay, I'm okay with this now. But by the same token, I think fear of heights and fear of falling is pretty much universal. I'm also scared absolutely to death of the ocean and being underwater. So uh, it was easier for me to overcome my fear of heights. And how often in life do people really get to overcome a big fear in their lives? It doesn't well, happen that gift, often. Isn't it? That's the gift. I think that's really the gift because you get to face it, embrace it, and tackle it, and then find out on the other side that maybe it was just an illusion. Well, and and maybe it wasn't. Maybe there was a reason for you to be afraid, but maybe once you recognize what's involved in what you're afraid of, you can ameliorate those things that make it a problem, and you change your life. Trapeze changes people's lives because they, to a person, well, not to a person, men, strangely, watch the flying trapeze and go, oh, so you jump off, you do this here, you do that there, you turn around, you go back, and then, boom, oh, I can do that. They jump off, they pay no attention to anything that the coach is telling them, they do it completely wrong. <laughs> And they get yelled at. Women, on the other hand, watch, and they go, hmm, okay, I think I understand that. But when most women, and of course I'm not generalizing, I'm saying most men and most women, exceptions to everything, women will listen and do what they are told when they know that the person speaking to them is an expert. So women traditionally, I think, learn a little bit faster than men. 
unless they're, you know, athletes, um, high divers, gymnasts, people like that who have already been doing this type of exercise progress at a really hateful and alarming rate. We hate them when they come. But it, I mean, the first time somebody stands at the base of a trapeze rig and looks up 32 feet and sees people flying back and forth, catching each other's hands, letting go of his hands and going back to the same trapeze bar you started from and swinging back up onto the pedestal board that you were standing on. when you It's like, I could never do that. I could never, ever do that. And if I did, my brains would fall out of my ears. But at the end of a class, if you listen, you have done exactly that. And it will change your life. Wow. Well, now this comes from a woman who, after all these years of flying, you also had quite a little accident at one point. Can you tell us how that happened and what you did? Well, the the we came back from our Club Med vacation, and we were showing our home movies to some friends, and I was just hopping up and down about the trapeze, and my friend said, oh, I know somebody who has one of those in their backyard in uh, Woodland Hills. And I went, no, you don't. She said, yes, I do. I'll take you over there. So she takes me over, and this is at a different place. This is not where I fly with Richie now. This was another stuntman who went to her church, and he had a flying trapeze rig in his backyard. And he did not want to have a school. He didn't want it to be that regimented. So he said, anybody can come here. I will teach you the basic steps of the flying trapeze, but... You have to learn how to hold each other's safety lines. You have to learn how to hand people the trapeze when you're standing up on the pedestal board with them. And you have to be, you know, you have to be part of the troop. You can't just come up and fly and have everybody wait on you and help you and not give back. So that's what we did. Well, at some point I was much younger then. Um, some of us would fly without the safety lines, which meant if you fell, you had to know how to fall into the net safely. And one day, uh, for some reason, when he caught me without safety lines, he only caught one of my hands. And as we were swinging through the upside-down arc, it's you, you get very heavy when you swing when you start at the top of the swing you're weightless you get very heavy through the belly of the swing and then when you come back up you're weightless again well he couldn't hold on to me as we were getting into the center of the swing because he only had one hand so he let go of me and I landed in the net on my neck and my body folded over my head and made a terrifying noise and uh, it hurt a whole lot, but I lay there in the net and wiggled all my fingers and toes and could talk. And so I said, oh, well, I must be fine. I must have just tweaked something because I had tweaked, you know, a shoulder or a finger or something before. And it it hurts. And then you just shake it off and get out of the net. So this was a little little different. So my girlfriend 
drove me home, and we went to the hospital, and they x-rayed me and said, oh, no, this is just a sprain. Uh, You're very lucky. Here's a little foam collar and some painkillers, and you just come right back if it hurts more or, or come back in a week, and we'll check you out. So it didn't get any better, and it kept getting worse, and so I went back, and there was a different um, radiologist on, and he came out and said, you have a broken neck. You're walking around with a broken neck. Strap her to a board and don't let her out of the hospital. (laughs) So I had to have surgery on my broken neck and was out for about six months, and this was, 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago. And I said to the doctor, the neurosurgeon, whatever you do to put my neck back together, just make sure that it'll hold because I'm going back up. And he thought I was completely insane. Many of us did, by the way. Well, yes, yes. However, Ralph, my husband, did not. He understood, and he said, well, just, you know, he implored the doctor to just do whatever he could to make it hold on really well. And so six months later, I did not go back to the place where I was injured. I went to Richie Guyona's and explained what my story was. And so he said, okay, don't worry, we'll keep you safe, and laughed at me when I fell into the net holding my head because I was afraid it would pop off. (laughs) But it, gradually, I lost that fear again, and that's where I've been flying ever since. Wow. I mean, that's a pretty interesting story. The woman who broke her neck couldn't wait to get back and is still flying to this day and uh, and loving it. I know when you go on vacation, your, your, your biggest excitement about returning home, say hi to the cats and then go out to the rig. That's kind that's of right. your motivation. You, you just that's miss right. it so much. Well, what do you think has been your, your fondest memory of your uh, long career in hobby flying? You know, it's going to sound really weird. I have caught some big tricks. I've caught a double somersault nine or ten times, which is a, a respectable trick. It's, I mean, it takes some doing. Uh, so I've caught my share of decent tricks. Um, but I think what... I love more than anything is to have new people come to try it themselves and be up on the board with them and talk to them and try and figure out what words are going to get the meaning through to them because when you're when you're terrified and people are talking to you, sometimes it just sounds like quack, 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 and you just nod your head and go, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> and it, it's sometimes, like Richie has told me how to do something 10 million times, and then I'll go to some other rig and fly, and they'll they'll use three words differently, and I'll go, Oh, okay. I understand it better this way now. And which of course infuriates Richie, but he understands. So, when you do things like you break through 
somebody's fear into their mind and you explain to them in a way that lets them experience what I will always remember as my first swing off the trapeze, and you see their lives change. It's just the frickin' best thing ever. I mean, people cry. It, it happens very often when people do something like this that they didn't think they could do. They come down, and, of course, they're shaking so hard they can barely walk, and they cry because they have surprised themselves beyond any expectation they've ever had. So I, I really think that's my, my biggest high with this. Wow. That is just amazing. And and what has flying taught you? I mean, is there anything that lesson in life, uh, an experience that you had that you nothing else could have taught you but flying? Oh boy, that's a good one. Um, I guess trust, trust yourself, trust. Um, I'm. I'm a very controlling person, so there have been times when Richie has said to me, take off the safety lines and do this without the the mechanic, and I'll go, no, I, no, I'm afraid. And he'll say, I know you can do it. And I look at him and I go, okay, he's the expert, he's the best, okay, and I trust him. And I'm afraid, but I do it. So you you have to learn not to listen to the fear voice in your head. And uh, by the same token, you can't be cocky and go, oh, well, I've done this two times. I can just, you know, take off the safety lines and do whatever I want. That doesn't work that way. But trusting yourself, trusting your coach, trusting your catcher, that's a big one that they're not going to throw you into Mr. Apron on the backside of the swing. So you just, you, and, and to, in this day and age, when people's heads are in their phones, up their butts, if I can say that on the radio, arguing yeah. about politics and who's right and who's wrong, this is such a joy to just go and it's like meditation it really is because it's all you can think about and you want to help people do the same thing so it's it's the focus it's the freedom it's just i you know i that's the only way i can explain it well if people who have been listening are now all excited about learning how to fly Pamela Ventura, how would you tell them to find a rig and learn this great art and this this mystery of life? There is a website, and I believe it's called flyingtrapeze.com. It lists, it's, it's run by a man, I think, in Belgium named Alastair Pilgrim. They could also look for Alastair Pilgrim's name. And he has a list of every flying trapeze rig in the world. So he can tell you who owns it, how to get there. Um, I don't know how... Um, how far away this show goes, but if it's people in Los Angeles, 
our rig, Richie Guyona's trapeze uh, workshop, is in Woodland Hills. You can look up Richie Guyona or Guyona's trapeze workshop. There is a rig at the Santa Monica Pier, which is in a very fun location because it overlooks the uh, roller coaster and the, all the people playing on the pier. It's a very good place for a beginner who just wants to go and see what it feels like. And then if they want to pursue it and really take it seriously, then they can come and fly with us at Richie's. But there, or even just Google flying trapeze, there's a ton of things that will come up. All right, and Richie Guyona is spelled G-A-O-N-A. Correct. Richie Guyona, and that is the the the, the flying Guyonas, the Guyona family, and they have a lot of history you can look into too. And the book, if someone is interested, is called Learning to Fly. It's by Sam. K-E-E-N. It's a wonderful book to read about life. He uses flying as a metaphor, but he goes deep, deeply into spirituality and what this means to him as a human being on his path. So I want to thank you, Pamela, for being with us. It's been great to have you on the show. I'm invigorated. I'm pretty much ready to say... Let's try it again. So I may be calling you. I may want to do this, and I may want to have you whisper in my ear and take me into that wonderful zone of flying, or as Sam calls it, a world ruled by enchantment where magic existed way before morality. I think I love all of that, and congratulations to you for an incredible life. Back to you, Hercules. Wow. Thank you, guys blown away that that was amazing and uh the correspondence between uh, trapeze art and jumping out of plane and spirituality was phenomenally profound and it will be the subject of tonight's uh, meditation thank you very much i'd like to use this episode in my I, i'm starting a career center in a local library and we have a lot of interesting people who do interesting things and this certainly qualifies and uh uh, your journey is amazing. So I'd like to share a link to this episode on, on those pages as well. That would be great. Where are you located, Hercules? I'm in New Jersey, in Bergen County, and I'm the friends of the uh, Kreske Library's president. And we're trying to experiment with uh, um, uh, teaching skills and giving information that will help people uh, survive in this ever-changing uh, and unpredictable economy. That's great, well, and trapeze excellent. would really help them. Yes, it would. And, and just think, we may have birthed new circus performers right here tonight on this I show. know, and Hercules, I will send you links to rigs that are near you because you really should go try it. <laughs> I, I now want to do it. I never thought of doing it before, but after listening to you guys speaking, now I, too, yearn to fly. Good, good. So thanks again, and I'm looking forward to your next show, CAC, and I'm looking forward uh, to having you back on, Pamela. Great. I look forward to it as well, and I will follow you on Facebook. I'm Thank you, honored. everybody. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. We're going to take a brief break. We're going to listen to Cauldron Born by Dave the Bard, which is about renewal and rebirth, which was a theme in uh, tonight's uh, show with uh, CAC, and it will be also in the next segment, uh, which is hosted by Jerry Hosek.
We call to the powers of earth, sea and sky Of dragon and fairy and shades of the night We call to our ancestors of blood and bone Of womb and tomb and standing stone Lady, stir your cauldron well Chant your words and sing your spell Deep within this darkened hall Hear the goddess carried when called Come and taste of the cauldron's brew And magic she will give to you You will dance in the eye of the storm Your carried when's children The cauldron born Oh lady, stir your cauldron well Chant your words and sing your spell Within this darkened hall Hear the goddess carried when called Come and taste of the cauldron's brew And magic she will give to you You will dance in the eye of the storm Your carried when's children The cauldron born Hercules. I'm, uh, I'm doing quite well. I'm glad to hear um, that. Was having a little late late night dinner. Um, what what were you talking about with the two ladies that were on earlier? That sounded interesting. What are you going to try? Well, what is it? Um, Tack Young invited her uh, friend uh, Pamela Ventura, who used to write for comedy shows uh, like uh, Laverne and Shirley and uh, really? you know, shows wow. from that era. Yes. And uh, now she's a trapeze artist. <laughs> no so, way. So, yeah, so she does trapeze. And uh, the way she was describing um, the spirituality of it, you know, that you have to let go and, like, trust <laughs> a yep. lot of the time. You know, you got to trust that higher power. Otherwise, you'd be too afraid to do it. was phenomenally profound. And then Cac talked about jumping out of airplanes, which, which I've never done. Uh, I haven't done the trapeze either, so it sounded so amazing uh, that at the end uh, they suggested I try it. So I told them that I never thought of uh, trying it before, but they made it sound so incredibly awesome that, uh, who knows, I'll look into it. It sounds great. Um, I think I like the trapeze artist idea. Um, A friend of mine who went skydiving said, you know, all the thrill is when you're jumping out of, the plane and then once you're kind of floating down he says it's kind of it's boring really <laughs> that, was, that was his take on it yeah and that was his and that was his first time as well so he thought that yeah all the thrill is in you diving out of the plane and then once 
you're free falling. He says it's kind of you know you just have your arms out and it's like you're just standing still almost. <laughs> I can't see myself getting bored uh, falling toward the ground at incredible incredible speeds. <laughs> well, this guy's kind of critical of a lot of things anyway, so maybe he's okay. over maybe he's over analyzing it. Um, but yeah, I, I I don't see how that could be boring um, in any sense, but. Um, for some, it is evidently. There's an so, indoor skydiving place. So Tina and I passed it on the highway a few times. So we've been thinking of checking that out one day. Yeah, I don't even know what that's all about. I watched them build it, wondering what is that building that's going up. It doesn't look like anything familiar. Uh, you're to- are you talking about the one on Route Four? Yes. In Paramus? Maybe we can get together, eat, eat lunch or something, and drive by there and see what it's all about one day. Sure, maybe we'll have a pizza parlor, pizza party there for your birthday, your next birthday, or mine. Sounds, Actually, yours is, like yours, you just had a birthday, so we're too late yeah, for I just that. Had one. Yeah. Um, so um, interesting. I've been clearing a lot of just you know stuff with the magazine. I have, I I have a new dis- distribution company. And awesome. I like them. I like them so far. So I think my good vibes is also having people call in, uh, uh, inquiring about advertising. So that's been happening a lot, uh, that's which great. is nice. Yeah, yeah, which is nice. And um, so I, interestingly enough, um, a woman called, I guess it was last week. I don't know. These days are going by so fast. Last, I was last, yeah, it was. I think it was last week sometime, and um, she asked me about trauma recovery. Who who's doing trauma recovery work? Actually, she she remembered an article or a, a an advertisement from one of my advertisers, of course, and she didn't have the magazine anymore. She might have thrown it away or whatever, but um, she was asking me, I said, oh, I know who that is, and, and then it uh, turns out she has a, you know, interesting story, like, okay, we sometimes think of trauma recovery like people recovering from um, war injuries or sexual assault or criminal mm-hmm. assault, but this young lady had a, a narcissistic um alcoholic father who was pretty rough on her so he was abusive um at least verbally she didn't really get into detail but um so of course years later as an adult she's looking for solutions to uh let's say resolve whatever aftermath this this childhood caused so um Uh and you know i'm kind of familiar with some of some of those dynamics, and um, it was interesting um, because this this is somebody very active in in taking responsibility for her mental health and looking mm-hmm. at all options. She went uh, she went to something and there was somebody doing holistic some kind of healing work, trauma recovery healing. I, I'm, I don't recall what it was, and uh, but she had gone down there to do a bunch of sessions with this person and she said she did definitely see some benefit from it and then she was looking you know for more to uh 
to to for a more rapid or more accelerated um, clearing or healing of you know whatever she was working on, and um, so I'm I'm of the opinion, and I've been hearing this from from some practitioners uh, over the years that that people are waking up to oh I have this issue and it I need to do something about it finally or you know uh, something things things hit a boiling point or come to a head maybe uh-huh. a divorce yeah maybe divorce maybe they lose a job maybe they're you know whatever get fired for some addiction or something or whatever it is but um people are I think more and more um as we move through this ascension process or whatever folks are calling it um this this shift in um our collective consciousness um this this accelerated evolution of the species which uh uh-huh. which which we're all I I would imagine at this point we're all being pushed to change something that we need to change so yes, um most I, right so so I think that um in the very near future, there's going to be a lot of folks looking for assistance, and there is a lot of stuff out there. I don't, I just don't think it's, you know, as out, I'm talking about outside of mainstream medicine, uh, you're more, uh, your, uh, uh, you know, spiritual advisors that are psychic, let's say, that can provide information as 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 far as pinpointing certain issues, traumas, whatever, you know, how things got this way, why I do this pattern, why I go for the same girl, why I go for the same guy. Um, and, you know, there's good old-fashioned talk therapy for that that I think, you know, has its place and it does work for uh-huh. a while. I don't think it's, a, I don't think it's uh, really the, the be-all, the end-all, or, or something that should be done for 15, 20 years. Um, but um, there's so much out there now. Um, and at the end of the day, when we all, when we boil it all down, and uh, come up with you know an explanation as to what's going on. It's it's yeah we're being we're being pushed I guess uh, uh, or motivated more than ever before uh, through circumstances that are showing up to to clear certain patterns that that don't serve us or never never really did. But um, um, and 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 that could be you know that's a host of that's a that's a whole array of of behaviors, thought patterns, you know, I, I don't know. I, I do subscribe to the school of thinking that, you know, thinking positive and uh, maintaining a positive outlook and, and being a good person and being nice um, uh-huh. does, pay it, does pay its dividends. Um, but I think I to get there, well. right, but I think to get there, to get to that point where we can actually be that, um, we do have to clear our shit. Our, our our issues and a lot of it um in my uh experience and and uh you know experience of some friends that you know I've had over the years that I've done some like medicine work with let's say um a lot of it is mommy and daddy issues <laughs> and uh, yes and and you know, and I think I think maybe I I chose to speak about this tonight, and and not so much the charity because the charity ties into all this anyway. But we'll we'll, we'll get to that. I'll watch the time so we 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 look into that a little bit. Um, okay. Closer to closer to the eleven o'clock hour, um, but 
I I see a lot of this, why we choose, especially why we get into certain relationships, why we marry people that, are, you know, uh, for a guy, marry somebody that's like his mother. You know, for a woman, marry somebody uh, that's like that was like her father. And why we do that is because we never really resolved the issue with the, the, the parent or both parents or whatever the case was um, in the first mm-hmm. place. So we're given those those similar circumstances again perhaps through um a girlfriend or marriage or uh, uh you know long-term relationship lover or whatever uh to to be in those circumstances again so um perhaps they trigger these these memories of of this unresolved dynamic whatever it is you know maybe mom was or dad was unemotion- uh, emotionally unavailable or whatever, or maybe they were physically unavailable. Maybe, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so what happens when, when we're children, all, all of this that's occurring around us uh, tends to be magnified like a hundred times, I guess, when we're real, really young and, and less and less as we get older. Um, but, but does, you know, do the damage um, when we're quite young because, um, you, know, you know, we're meant to be nurtured through our younger years and built up into confident, emotionally intelligent, emotionally healthy people. And that's not typically the case. If you work in corporate America, you'll know (laughs) what I'm saying. Because it seems to be wrought with with, um, pride, ego, personality, personality disorders. Um, So, um, and that's the real world. You know, that's the world that I haven't been part of in in a long time, and happily so. but uh, what are your thoughts? I'm going to take a little breather. <laughs> okay, sure. No, what you're saying is right. Trauma recovery is phenomenally important. Trauma is how we're indoctrinated and uh, conditioned uh, into the uh, life that our society or our culture offers us. And uh, as we know, uh, this is often done by breaking down uh, who we are and reinforcing lessons through violence. <laughs> or fear or something really extreme that imprints itself uh, on us. Uh, And it takes a long time to see that. And if you're willing to work on it, it takes even longer uh, to figure out how to free yourself uh, from, uh, you know, those type of uh, traumas uh, that keep you stuck uh, where you are. In uh, Greek mythology, there is the Hound of Hades, uh, Kerberos, or or Cerberus, as he's called in uh, English. And his job wasn't to prevent people from entering the underworld. It was to prevent people from leaving the underworld. And he did that through fear. Uh, Cerberus had three heads, and uh, each head had snakes on it. There were snakes throughout his body and on his tail. So where Cerberus uh, is are your three greatest fears uh, plus a bunch of your smaller fears. And that's what keeps people back, you know, the fear uh, or the voices of people who put that fear uh, into you or that shame into you or whatever they use to to condition you. So um, all of us have a lot of work to do on, uh, you know, seeing this and freeing ourselves uh, uh, from it. Uh, But people whose lives are affected by the trauma, which means they can't function, uh, they're kind of stuck in that hellish uh, place where other people can escape from it. Uh, whether they do it in a healthy or unhealthy way is up to them. Um, but uh, some people get stuck, and they're like living a hell on earth. So um, 
Uh, I really yeah. like what you're saying and how it's uh, shedding light uh, on what you decided to do about it, which is uh, quite awesome. And that's why I want to be part of it. Um, but uh, I work every day on my traumas. Uh, I look at where my fear comes up. Uh, I look at where any like uh, unpleasant uh, emotion pops up and I sit and look at it and I talk to it and I try to see it. And a lot of times it'll hide. You know, it doesn't want to be seen. It doesn't want to be removed. You know, it'll distract you, you know, uh, or, uh, you know, it'll make you afraid and, and right. not, not want to look at it. But uh, once you look at it and like through techniques like active imagination, uh, you could talk to it and sometimes it'll shape shift. It'll take on different guises until it lets you see what it uh, truly is. But it's worth doing because uh, yeah. as difficult yeah. as the process is and as scary as the process is, when you're free of it, you can breathe a sigh of relief. And once you know it, you can tell when it's trying to sneak back in, you know, because you, you know it. You know, you can spot it. It's like, I know you. And no, you're not getting control of me anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um, interesting. Interesting what you just said. Um, I I was listening to Odyssey of Ascension on it's a YouTube channel on on, on YouTube, and um, okay. uh, Roxanne does it. I'm friendly with her. She, she's out of Texas, so she channels a bunch of different entities. It's uh, uh-huh. Odyssey of Ascension. If so, oh, if, uh, if yeah, if anybody's into this stuff, um, if you like if you like to hear channelings from entities in other dimensions, uh, I highly recommend <laughs> Roxanne's. Uh, YouTube channel, and um, so she was saying something. I caught a, a piece that rang true, um, piece, piece of one of her recent channelings, and it was. And she said, or, or the entity that she was channeling said that we're 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 letting that fear ping against us, right? Just ping, right. ping, ping, and right. And like like you said earlier, just just. Um, we're able to now, uh, uh, some of us anyway, are able to now just sit with it and almost like, you know, like just hang out with it. And and, and I actually did something like this um, not long ago, and I wrote about it in one of the publisher letters. Um, and so, yeah, when that fear comes up or whatever is being driven by fear, um, we have to, yeah, we have to look at that very closely and ask ourselves, well, you know, this you know why am I doing this? This isn't coming from a place of love. It's coming from a place of fear, and it's interesting. I had somebody call me today about some email blast that I did, some email marketing piece, and it was it was um, I was being like almost berated, <laughs> and uh-huh. and um, I I I don't want to get into the circumstances. I don't want to you know mention who and why and where, but. Um, and I thought, I'm listening to this person, I'm saying, what are you afraid of? I'm like, you know, and it, was, it had something to do with the magazine. I said, we're like this huge franchise, and like somebody uh-huh. worrying about some, some competition that, um, that actually is, is somebody that works for a, an advertiser that we share, uh, me and a, a couple other publishers. And it was just, um, you know, I, I, I caught myself, and I didn't, I caught myself, like, I'm catching myself really early now, and I'm not taking the bait and getting emotional about anything anymore, I guess. Um, so far, so good. You know, those those tests do come, I think, kind of regularly. But um, so I 
just said, listen, I don't want to talk. Can we talk about this after hours? I'm trying to close some sales here, and, you know, I'm busy. Um, I said, oh, you know, you're going to blow me off. And I'm like, no, now you're trying to make me guilty, trying to manipulate me. <laughs> like, Come uh-huh. on, dude. Like, get this is, you know, we're, we're having a, a mass awakening here. Like, get with the program. Like, mm-hmm. where you been? Where you, what under, what under, what, what rock have you been under? Um, but, hey, listen, the whole world is um, full of this kind of behavior, unfortunately. And, you know, I was a big, I used to be a big violator of, of a lot of, you know, a, a lot of rules, things not to do. <laughs> like, when you call people, uh, I, you know, act professionally and, um, inquire at well, first what's going on before you get emotional about something you don't even understand. Somebody was calling me to get right. information, but it was already huffy and puffy. And I'm like, yo, just chill out. Everything's cool, you know? But but it's I amazing. think, you know, huh? It's amazing what, what? you're saying. I, I had a bunch of experiences uh, recently because I'm guilty of things uh, also. I mean, I, I've uh, learned the hard way through the school of uh, hard knocks and uh, sometimes I'm very yeah. slow uh, learning some of these basic things, but I do. I am open to learning them, and so I eventually uh, learn them. Uh, but I had a couple of experiences lately where I was like feeling apprehensive about certain things, mm-hmm. and I couldn't. I couldn't base the apprehension on anything that was actually uh, happening. And right. uh, so I, I figured maybe it's some sort of psychic uh, impression or something, you know. So I started mm. thinking about it. And uh, I couldn't get anything, um, you know, from that either. So the events that I was feeling uh, apprehensive about came and went without incident. In fact, I had a great time. Oh, good. So it started to make me look at how much of our reactions are to things that have no basis in reality and don't even happen. So Yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah, I had a similar so experience. Yes. Yes. Oh, awesome. Yeah, um yeah, I was well, it wasn't apprehension, it was um it was worry about uh, an actual an advertiser who he just did a short campaign with me and um you know, that's what his budget warranted and that's fine. And and then like he it was getting uh, towards the end of you know me completing whatever I was supposed to deliver, and uh-huh. I, I needed to send him an invoice, and like he wasn't around much. He was he was like he was overseas for a while, and and he he was kind of hard to get a hold of, and 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 you know no big deal. Not but but I started thinking, wait, is he going to try to get out of paying his balance? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and I and I worked this thing up into um, you know into a little drama and mm-hmm. and then when I sent him his invoice finally on Monday morning I got an email back right away and it's like hey buddy you know I'll I'll put a check in the mail tomorrow uh, call call me I'm you know I'm pretty available today because I was I was joking in the email I said what what's going on you don't call nothing blah blah. <laughs> And and, uh, and I was just joking. So I got that email right away, and I I was relieved. And I thought to myself, Jerry, you were making that that story up in your head, and it had no basis in reality because I was looking at certain conditions, facts, right? Like I can't get a hold of him. What you know, like like a, a several times, 
Um, and he's not, he's not somebody that's, that, that's not, he's not somebody that's difficult to get a hold of typically. Um, and, um, so, you know, lesson learned, just don't project, don't overanalyze right. things. I'm good at, I'm good at overanalyzing because, because I think what I did a lot, uh, once I hit a certain age was to try to predict what would happen because when I was young, I was always trying to avoid a beating for something, for some something I did, <laughs> something bad I did, right? Uh, anyway, well, it, some of it did, some of it was pretty bad when I got older, because uh, I, I knew better at that point. But, but I did it anyway, because I I was in the pattern already of of needing attention, and that was the only way I can get it by by acting out uh, in a in a negative manner i guess so um but uh getting back to yeah i think a lot of this you know it's funny i I meet people and sometimes we get into you know more intimate conversations sometimes quickly sometimes you know a little bit later on and and you ask people about their parents their childhood oh yeah i had a great childhood yeah yeah and you know everybody that says that is full of shit because uh-huh. eventually, and I apologize for cursing, but but I needed to drive that point home. Don't lie to yourself. Don't be in denial. Your parents, I I'm sure some of us had pretty good parents. I mean, look, they were all they all did their best. I'm not trying to lay blame or anything, but I want to call a spade a spade. If if because the reason is that a lot of what's at our at our core. At, at, at what's driving those core issues, the real deep, deep stuff, has to do typically with mother-son relationship, father-daughter. And if there's yes. a disconnect there, man, there's a disconnect across the board in life, especially relationships. Because the whatever the issue was, if it remains open, it needs to get resolved to end the ensuing patterns that were created out of the trauma or the whatever, the neglect, the abandonment, the emotional abandonment, the abuse, whatever it was. So we need to not be afraid of the pain and say, okay, let's examine this. And, you know, if there's something here I need to release, let go of, if I need to go cry in a, in a room for an hour, so be it. But let me get it out. Let me stop holding on to this stuff because what happens is when we don't release it or when it's, I, I guess, sometimes it has to be time because I know some of this stuff is, so-called karmic, but, um, and I'm even questioning that now, um, but, karma? but, huh? Well, I mean, I know there's karma. I know that, I know that we elect to go through the karma. It's not imposed. Um, I'm just wondering why we're so crazy to, to impose this upon ourselves, but, uh, I've always I guess, stated that too. I've always said it sounds like a bad, uh, you know, like one of those credit cards, you know, where uh, you're, <laughs> yeah. you're given amnesia, <laughs> <laughs> you have to, and then you're traumatized uh, into whatever the condition of your society. Uh, and then as you try to get yourself out of it, you know, with amnesia, uh, you wind up owing, you know, like uh, uh, karma with interest. <laughs> oh, yeah. If you devote your life to waking up like we have, uh, what do you call it? You've accumulated tons and tons and tons of karma in the process. So um, then you're given amnesia again, and you got to go through the whole thing. So it seems like a bad deal to me. Yeah, I think it's a bad deal. And, and actually, the, 
the the modality that woke me up, the the therapy or, or modality that's called quantum healing hypnosis technique, uh, the founder of that, it involves past, it typically these sessions that they do, these very um, deep trance uh, sessions where you're actually, you're usually most people are conscious like the entire time I was, but I was deep. I was uh-huh. deep. And the reason I know that is it took me a good 20 minutes to actually come back to normal after the session ended. And um, Dolores Cannon, who is the founder, who started off doing simple, um, simple hypnosis, like for you know habits, quitting smoking and such, uh, and then later it 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 transitioned into. Um, she was one of the first people doing regression work because it just showed up for her, and she worked she worked uh-huh. with it. She just she just you know figured out what it was and worked with it and, and saw the benefits. And um, and she was actually um, married to a serviceman, so she was doing this on military basis. And at one point they were calling her a witch because these folks that were in the military, I guess um, not to not to generalize, but, you know, a lot of them just didn't, didn't have um, – an open mind or whatever, but this was like new for everybody in the, in when she was, you know, pioneering Uh it. And so it did look like witchcraft, I guess, back then, because, you know, we, nobody was used to seeing anything like it. And, um, and then it turned into this quantum healing hypnosis where um, you're actually getting in touch with your your practitioner can, can actually get in touch with your higher self and communicate with it Uh at, at times. Um, and if that doesn't occur, typically you'll see past lives that um, it will indicate certain patterns that are still alive in this life that are, you know, related to the lives that you've seen from the past. Uh-huh. Um, so she, Dolores Cannon, the founder, um, she, in, you'll, in some of her interviews and, and such, she'll, she'll say that we got stuck on the wheel of karma. Uh-huh. And I, you know, this came up in a song lyric or something, and it came up a few years ago in a conversation that I had with a new friend. Um, and uh, he said, fallen angels. <laughs> mm. And I don't know, man, like this big, this big flag went off for me. And I was like, uh-huh. what did you just say? And we started talking about it. And supposedly... Um, there's this school of thought that says, like, we're fallen angels. We come here um, because we 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 cross the line, right? Okay. In, in some incarnation or incarnations, and and we have to kind of like earn our wings back uh, through karma and through seeing, you know, the disempowered side of karma, um, as well as when we were in power and we were abusing it because that's really the theme here on earth. That's what a lot of us get to experience here is, is unfairness, um, injustice, betrayal, all the good stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the so, stuff of legends. What's that? The stuff of legends. Yeah. The stuff dreams are made of. Ha ha. <laughs> no pun intended or pun intended, I guess. Yeah. Sweet dreams are made of these. And 
I I only figured that out since I awakened that song. What it what it means? Sweet dreams. That's um, Annie Lennox, I believe, or the the, uh, the Eurythmics, maybe the Eurythmics. Uh, it's, it's either her solo, on. yeah. Great song, and um, yeah, she's in, she's she's pretty awakened to 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 create that song. So, um, but I've been uh, I've been just you know working lately a lot. And like you, like you, I'm clearing the path for, and so any anything unnecessary, frivolous, out, gone, gone. Any relationships, uh-huh. friend, friendships not serving me anymore, gone, out. Um, I'm becoming like a mercenary at this point. And, um, you know, I just want clear, clear sailing ahead. And that's. That's where we're going. Yes, uh, and uh, I've also been streamlining my life uh, a great deal uh, as well and finding the things that are really important to me and spending more time with those things and those people uh, that are most important to me and then uh, cutting back time on all the other things that that I'm doing. And I'm really looking at which things I need to do. Uh, There's a sense of urgency, not like in a bad way, (laughs) in a good way. So uh, uh, I'm, uh, you know, like uh, tapped into that and I'm, I'm just moving uh, forward. And uh, uh, it's surprising, too. It's simple things uh, like what am I going to do in terms of physical fitness? You know, instead of uh, exercising all the time and, um, you know, like uh, exploring, I, I've always known what I want to do. So it's about time I just did that. You know, <laughs> and I don't really need to, to learn that much more and then share my road with other people in case somebody out there, you know, can benefit from it. It, that sounds great, and I laughed when you said urgency, mm-hmm. because because I recalled an experience I had in the in the 80s and even in the early 90s a little bit. I I was involved in a multi-level marketing company. Uh huh. And um, yeah, it wasn't Amway. Uh, it was a company that became also very, very successful, um, but it was like, you know, some time after Amway. And um, my sponsor was pretty close to the top of the pyramid, let's say. And and I got to meet, or we got to actually, um, we got to see these some of these heavy hitters that were in the company speak. I mean, these guys, some of these guys were making several hundred thousand dollars a month. Wow. In, in commission checks, yeah. But they were way at the top, and um, I believe the typical story with someone like this was that they were in another company where they build up a big downline, and then when that folded, they brought all their people over to this new opportunity. And a lot of them do fold. There's not, there's not. It, I think it's a very small percentage of, of those that actually make it because they're not. They're typically not run all that ethically um, at the top. Uh, but this company was one of the exceptions, and um, one of the gentlemen I got to, I think he was like number three or something in the company. Um, his name was Richard Call, and okay. um, he was he was out of Long Island. So there was this group out of Long Island, and one of them, one of the heavy hitters out of there, was the sponsor of my sponsor, and so we got we got access to these to these meetings with these heavy hitters, and um, and. Uh, it was amazing to hear some of them talk, and, and when, once uh, at 
one of these engagements, speaker engagements, I really got to understand what it took, and I didn't have it at the time. Um, not for that, not for the business. Uh, I, I wanted to get rich because that's the dream, you know, that, yeah. that's, that's kind of pushed um, on uh, or it's peddled on people uh, who, uh, you know, who they're trying to get to sign up. Uh, and and it it's kind of a – it turns into an addictive thing if you, if you become, um, I guess, obsessed with it, obsessed with the money and whatever. Uh, but but Richard Call said something, and he uh, he made he made a lot of money in the business, and he said he said it it takes you have to have an urgency if you right. really really want to make it, you know if you really want to be successful, and it struck a chord with me then, and not that it helped me in that multi-level marketing business I was in, but I remembered it, and I remembered it last week when I was, um, you know, like you, cl- cleaning house or starting starting to really clean house uh, uh-huh. and, and catch up on all kinds of things uh, to, to, you know, clear the path for what we're going to do together. And uh, – I wrote down that word urgency, and and it's on with a sharpie on a uh, half a sheet of paper, and it's it's sitting on a on a shelf in um, in the bathroom. Um, so every morning, I that's one of the first things I see is the word urgency to remind awesome. me that I have to have an urgency that there's you know there there's there is time here that's ticking, and right. we're not nobody's getting any younger. And you know, there's all this stuff that we want to do that maybe we didn't do yet, and and um, and and big dreams and you know b- big plans, and um, there's no time like the present to begin. Right. There's no and and I've already begun and I know you've begun, and um, I can't stress that um, enough. There's no, there's no waiting for. There's no perfect time. There's no waiting till the, you know, till I get money. Money, the money will show up. It will. You, know, yeah. you have to get in, You have to get into the motion of of moving forward first, um, because then the universe realizes, oh, this guy's serious. Oh, mm-hmm. let's throw, let's throw some resources at him. Let's conspire to help him a bit. He's committed. He's serious. Okay, you know, this is not going to be a waste. Let's bestow some 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 help upon him. <laughs> and, and it happens whatever you quickly need starts, too. Whatever you need starts to show up, huh? Yes, it happens quickly and dramatically, and I've had that happen. Uh, and we spoke about this recently uh, off uh, uh, the air. How uh, yeah. basically in two days I had the same conversation with a number of people who were sharing the same insights, uh, and those are insights I, I had gotten. So we were all on the same page. Uh, and they all showed up like in a very short period of time and, and like announced themselves. And you were among those uh, people. And I remembered my primal vision uh, in my primal vision, which is on my website. I've, I've told the story like a million times, but uh, anyway, I'm on top of a mountain and I'm blowing a horn and then certain spirits show up. And these are the spirits that uh, are going to be part of uh, whatever it is uh, that has to get done. So, yeah, I blew the horn, not literally, but internally. I said, I'm ready. You know, and uh-huh. I just left myself open. And then within a couple of days, I had all these declarations. So everybody I need, 
to do this uh, uh, joint thing with, you know, because they want to do the same thing. Uh, and they have different approaches, but it's all about freeing people from uh, the conditioning, from uh, freeing them from the, the trauma that keeps them in hell. Uh, so right. It, right. It, thus it begins. So the universe responds, and if you mean it, like you said, uh, it'll respond very quickly and unmistakably. Yes. Yes. Um, there's actually, um, I'm going to find it while we're, while we're chatting. There's a, um, a pretty famous quote by, well, it's actually, we're not, we're, nobody's here. There's nobody's quite sure who there's some debate as to who said this. Okay. Um, but it says what what you what you can do or dream you can. Begin it. Boldness yes. has genius, power, and magic in it. Yes. And um, I again I don't. There's some debate as to who said it, and you can find all that online. But yeah. uh, uh, one of the folks is Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. G-O-E-T-H-E. Uh, and okay. there's a longer version to that, but it's really, um, it's, uh, it really hits home because I, you know, I remember like starting, I started a pest control company in 1999 with a friend uh, who was licensed and um, he wasn't in the, he wasn't even working in the field at the time, but we were having conversations during lunch um, out in, because we were both working in the same town and we would meet up for lunch once a week or so. And he was, kept telling me how lucrative it is. And I was like, okay, let's start a pest control company. <laughs> and, and before you know it, we were starting a pest control company. <laughs> because my next question was, what do we need to do next? Because everything is steps. What yes. is the next step? So he said, well, we need to secure advertising. Back then it was the Bell Atlantic Yellow Pages. Right. Yeah, I remember those. Um, right, and and um, and we got some alphanumeric pages with live operator because we didn't want to miss a call because every call right. is potential money. So money. And um, and we barely had a work good working vehicle between us, and we didn't have the all the fancy equipment yet, but we had uh, salesmanship, <laughs> and <laughs> and we were chock full of true grit. And we just went out there and we solved people's problems with, um, you know, whatever limited functioning we had, but it worked. And before we knew it, we had like, you know, 10000 or so in the bank and we bought a truck and we got some uh, initial equipment on, on credit through a company who was marketing themselves aggressively. And, and then it just flowed from there. And he, actually, he's still doing it. What is that, 19, 20 years later? My, wow. my ex-partner, yeah, who I, I had him buy me out. He's still doing it. Um, still the same company, still in Bergen County, New Jersey. And, yeah, and he, he told me years later when I ran into him again, um, he said, you know, he said, uh, he said, you prepared me for the daughter I had. Because eventually he had to start raising her on his own because the mom died of cancer when she was four. So he said, you got me set up. And I said, what do you mean I, I got you set up? I said, you would have got you would have done it anyway. He goes, yeah, but it would have t- taken me a while to get back to it because I wasn't so much in a hurry. He said, you were the, you were the one with the dollar signs in your head. 
I said, <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah. Well, somebody had to uh, motivate his butt along. Um, so, um, oh, so the so we we're gonna start we're starting a charity, and uh-huh. you, you and I and your lovely wife had met um, uh, discussing this a few times in in whatever the last five weeks or so. Uh-huh. And uh, so now it's funny, like, I went off because I had my deadline for the June issue, and then you went off and did your thing, and I said, you know, I'm going to be tied down for a while, and who who knew that we were both clearing the path to to yeah. make this a reality? Uh, I didn't I didn't know that till, um I spoke to you today on the call. So um, we are starting a charity that is going to connect uh military veterans, first responders, anyone, you know, police, firemen, uh anyone that experiences any amount of significant trauma, let's say, um cuz those are the cases that need it the most um because it seems like they're not getting they're not connecting with some of the trauma recovery work that's being done out there that's viable, that's been proven, uh-huh. um, you know, m- maybe not necessarily by clinical trials and medical, you know, through the medic- traditional medical um, establishment, but, but people are getting the results they want. So who am I to question this? Or who, yes. you know, who is anybody to question it? Um, so these uh, veterans, we hear on the news periodically that a lot of them are still killing themselves because they come here traumatized and they're living in a hell, like you mentioned earlier, and um, they, I guess, don't know where to turn anymore, so they wind up taking their own li- lives to end the suffering. And so I, I have cleared some of my own trauma. Granted, it wasn't through, you know, bombs blowing up next to me or me watching my friends die in, in war, but um, but similar, I, I had some friends commit suicide and some friends, you know, die young uh, because we were leading these reckless lives uh, when we were young, and so, you know, I can't really compare it, I'm not, would never claim to compare that uh, to, you know, wartime uh, trauma, but, um I I know that uh, through my own work that there are viable modalities, techniques, um, methods of, of clearing trauma, and one that goes way back to 1985 even, I believe, when um, I, I think I mentioned this last time. There was a Dr. Sh- Dr. Francine Shapiro who started doing uh-huh. EMDR uh, on Vietnam vets, which is a form of um, therapy that actually syncs up both hemispheres of the brain to allow the trauma to out-process more effectively. And, um, you know, there, there's an EMDR institute. She's still doing that work. Um, it's just not well as well-known as it should be for whatever reason, and I, I guess because insurance isn't paying for it. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's not on everybody's radar yet. But um, but that's just one of many things that's out there. Uh, but, you know, I, I think we're all conditioned to go, you know, wherever we go for whatever's available, which is, I think, a lot of uh, pharmaceuticals. 
um, which I think should be just a short-term uh, tool mm-hmm. to use um, for for you know any uh, for any mental health issues uh, or any treating any trauma. And then talk, talk therapy, I think, does have its place, but that's definitely not a be-all to end-all, and that that doesn't no, address isn't. a lot of things that need to be addressed, and that doesn't address the trapped energy um, the, of, of the trauma. So. Um, what I want to what 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 we're going to do is we're going to connect veterans. We're going to raise funds, uh, and we already have uh, some good ways to do that because we're being actually coached by somebody that's that's a professional fundraiser and has been for years. Uh, big philanthropist friend of mine um, who was doing this since he semi-retired after getting three government pensions. And wow, um, right. So so we're going to connect these veterans that are in need uh, or critical need of, of trauma recovery work to the appropriate uh, practitioners in their area, uh, ideally, and get them on a program that's tailored for whatever their needs are based on what their traumas are and, you know, their experience has been. And, um, and, I, and then we're going to document it on film, uh, in in docudramas or small small doc small documentaries that might last like ten minutes, you know, for YouTube and and then we'll have longer versions as well uh, that go more in depth into the treatments and what's actually occurring and and how these what kind of um, results these folks are having. So, um, yeah, I want to put it out there to show the world that, um, you know, this exists. It's very real. Um, I I found all the help I needed once I got serious about just changing myself. I didn't realize I was going to be uh, clearing trauma for almost six years, but that, that was my journey um, because I guess I had a lot of it to clear. <laughs> Well, we, we all do. We don't realize how much uh, uh, until yeah. you're actually doing the work because we hide a lot of it and bury it. And we bury it in the many mm-hmm. ways. Uh, like uh, some people who are um, very overweight are burying it through food. Some people do different substances to, you know, to keep it uh, buried. Right. Uh, so, uh, so much of uh, our problems are due to these invisible, uh, unremembered or half-remembered traumas. And when you do trauma work, too, uh, sometimes, like if you do regression, um, you find that the trauma uh, was formed in the mind of a child. And as yes. a, an adult, you see the situation differently. So sometimes undoing the trauma is just seeing it with fresh eyes, you know, older eyes, wiser eyes. Um, not everything yes. is that easy, but some things are. Some things are just the realization that uh, this was traumatic to a little kid, the little kid that I once was, but it's not really <laughs> traumatic, you know? It's like it's understandable now. Um, I know by being a parent, you get confronted, you know, because you find yourself saying certain things your parents said or doing certain right. things your parents did. And all of a sudden, you could see the other side of that, uh, um, you know, th- that circumstance. So you begin to forgive uh, 
um, your parents for a lot of things that they did, and then you start forgiving yourself for you know, perpetuating the pattern, but at least you caught it. And, and now it doesn't have to be perpetuated anymore. It's, it's, it's amazing. And we've also spoken about how a lot of these things are invisible because they're normal to you. You grew up in them. Your relationships are flooded with them because you grew up in them. So they're, they're normal. You don't even look at them as something that shouldn't be normal for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, right. Because we do grow up with them and we're conditioned into into thinking that this is normal. Um, like parents that are controlling and manipulative, the children typically grow up to be that as well, even right. though that that was imposed on them and um, perhaps they they resisted or they rebelled or whatever, but they, they themselves actually grow up um, with those same behavior patterns. And if they have children, they'll bestow those patterns upon their children as well. Um, and this we know is the chain of, what do we call it? The chain of dysfunction, chain of trauma, yeah. the trans, transgenerational trauma, um, transgenerational parenting, a uh, pa- uh, patterning, excuse me, patterning. And, um, Right. So it's it's our job um, not to blame and to eventually because because a lot of it I I know for me and I think it, this holds true and and why I picked veterans um, when I first had these ideas to do this and we're, we're going to we're gonna have to yeah. do it to be continued because you have less than thirty seconds. To oh, that's fine. Off. Yeah, I was just going to say I picked veterans because a lot of the trauma that we're all experiencing is actually the product of transgenerational war trauma because we've had war right. in all of these regions ongoing and we're all affected by it in one way, directly, indirectly. So I, I did the research. I traced mine back, Eastern Europe, World War II, all that, big time, big time. So anyway, thanks for having me on and we'll see you next month to be continued. Be well, Jerry. Thanks a lot. Thanks to all at home who've been uh, listening. Until next time, this is Jerry and Hercules wishing you joyous journeys and awesome adventures. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network. Join us seven nights a week for exciting programming covering a variety of expressions of faith. And remember, all manifestations of the divine are equally valid.